0: As a reminder, this podcast represents the opinions of Dr. Colby Salerno and Dr. Aline Gregosian and our guests to the show. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for informational purposes only. And because each person is so unique, please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are our own and do not represent that of our employers. And lastly, in no way does listening, reading, emailing, or interacting on social media with our content establish a doctor-patient relationship. Thank you, and enjoy the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 3 of Both Sides of the Stethoscope. I'm your host, Colby Salerno, with my co-host here, Aline. Hi, everyone. Uh, Tonight, we're going to be talking about frequently asked questions as well as post-transplant healthy habits. Mostly, we either run into other patients that ask us this or we see these on message boards or we get asked to them, ask these questions through our Instagram so the first one we're gonna tackle that we see, I think, the most out of everything is do you drink alcohol post-transplant and or what are your recommendations in regards to alcohol post-transplant? So Aline, I'll let you start us off with this.
1: Sure. Um, we get asked this all the time. I think <clears throat> there's a few like caveats to this question. So the first one being that if alcohol, if alcohol use disorder or alcoholism is what's causing or it's, it's the etiology of whatever solid organ transplant you need. So for example, if you need a liver transplant from alcohol cirrhosis, or if you need a heart transplant due to like alcoholic cardiomyopathy, the answer is absolutely not. If I'm not mistaken, I know like our post liver transplant patients even have to get tested for alcohol use afterwards. So it's generally just to like stay away from alcohol. In regards to like you know, anybody else who gets a transplant and the etiology has nothing to do with alcohol use disorder. Like for example, Kobe had hokum or I had dilated cardiomyopathy from this mutated gene. The answer is still generally speaking, no. I know when I asked my doctors this early on and I got my transplant, uh, it was basically like in moderation is okay. With that being said, in moderation is like maybe once or twice a year here and there uh, a couple sips of it absolutely not to the point where you're getting drunk and also there's a few reasons for that Uh, i'll let kobe talk too but basically (laughs) one of the reasons is because alcohol can actually interfere with your medications that you're taking because they both get metabolized by the liver and so that's like one of the reasons why you shouldn't and then also if it caused any sort of impairment then you might forget your medications and that's like another big no-no so generally speaking, at least from from what I've heard, the answer is no. How about you, Kobe?
0: Yeah, I'm of the same thought. The I think the overall answer is no. You really shouldn't drink post-transplant. I think like Aline said, if it's a liver transplant, my recommendation would be do not pick up alcohol. Um you have enough to worry about with your liver the last thing you need to do is add alcohol into the equation. For other solid organ transplants, I think it's really a question of, is it needed? And I think we're always going to find the answer is no. I, As I've <laughs> grown up, I think more and more I've realized, you know, there's not much benefit to alcohol <laughs> um, in, in life in general. I think, you know, younger me in college might have thought differently. That was before my transplant, of course. But I think now you just have you've you've gone through something so life-changing you've been given this gift of life this new organ and we really should be doing everything we can to to keep it healthy and, and the main thing is of course there are toxic effects and you know health effects that alcohol can cause but the biggest thing is it can affect your metabolism of your medications and that's really what we are you know, where most of the advice from physicians comes from in terms of using alcohol post-transplant is that it really could mess with the metabolism of these meds, change the levels, which would change, you know, where you should be in terms of a therapeutic range to help you not have any rejection from your heart and or be too immunocompromised that you're at higher risk for infection. So I know myself, I pretty much abstain from alcohol for the most part you know, when I got engaged, I had one glass of champagne, but I'll go months and months without alcohol. And so I'm of the belief, you know, moderation to me means severe, severe reduction in alcohol intake. So, you know, one drink here and there um, for a celebration, sure. Um, But other than that, definitely not daily, definitely not to the point of getting drunk. Um, And I have, you know, this is something that is not just me saying this is something that I do live by myself.
1: Agree with that. Totally. Get another right. question that we get asked often, kind of along the lines of like, whether or not you can drink alcohol or or anything else, is always, can you smoke marijuana after heart transplant? What do you think about that, Kobe?
0: Yeah, so I'm actually... I have even stronger feelings about this than I do alcohol and specifically in terms of smoking marijuana. So I think 100% you should not smoke marijuana. Um, I don't think you should inhale anything that's combustible. So I mean, you know, putting anything on fire or even vaporizing anything. Um, so no cigarettes, no vape, no marijuana. Um, I think it's very important and important to avoid and, on the flip side, though, people out there, you know, they look towards marijuana in terms of its medicinal properties. People think of it in terms of anti-anxiety. Um, it's been shown to possibly have some benefits in epilepsy. People think of it in terms of pain control. So, if you truly feel that marijuana would be beneficial for you, um, of course, speak with your, you know, own physician. But if you are going to ingest, marijuana, my take on it is not to smoke it, but to possibly ingest it, um, through, uh, your GI tract. So through edibles, or there's even pills out there these days. And I would probably suggest going that route, uh, again, at the guidance of your own physicians.
1: I think I totally agree with that. I actually don't know like the, the literature behind, um, what could happen to you post-transplant if you do smoke marijuana. I didn't get to do a lot of research on that, but generally speaking, just abstain from it is the easiest way to go. Or just talk to your doctors. If you feel like there's a medicinal need for it, or there's something that you used to use it for before you got a transplant, and then you want to continue using it, for example, for pain control or something like that, then I'd say just go with what your doctor says. Always keep in mind that anything that you're taking extra or new on top of these medications um, we do get our prograph or, or our medication levels checked uh, every so often. And these things could interfere with the metabolism of that, including marijuana, including alcohol. Um, that's why it's so important to talk to your doctors about whether or not you're taking these medications or drugs afterwards.
0: And I think, you know, our recommendations, when, when a lot of stuff in terms of medicine is recommended, it's because a lot of trials have been done to look at its benefit versus risk. And the way the gold standard in the medical field is randomized control trials where you test the medication in a group of people versus a placebo in another group. And the reason that there's not good recommendations for the use of alcohol or marijuana post-transplant is it's just not a feasible study. You can't have people who have gone through hard transplant and split them into a group of this group drinks and this group doesn't. Uh, You would never want to do that. So, We have to think about what we know in terms of these things and the idea of, you know, the toxic features that alcohol can produce or the changes in your liver, that it can change the metabolism of your medications and kind of just think about that anecdotal evidence and observational evidence and say, hey, you just survived this, you know, life-changing organ transplant, probably not the best idea.
1: Yeah, that's exactly what I say, too. Um, Another thing I get asked often is whether or not you can drink caffeine after, specifically after a heart transplant. I don't know if your doctor's ever told you whether or not you can, Colby. I know mine basically said you can, but just in moderation. So maybe like half a cup of coffee, if that, you know, every few days is fine. Some physicians are definitely against it. And some are okay with like a little bit of caffeine here and there, because you do have to be uh, careful about increasing your heart rate too quickly. Um, when you do have a heart transplant, what do you, what do you say to that, Kobe?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. And I think this one, you know, I, I haven't looked into, and again, this one specifically, please talk to your own physicians, because for me, I can't survive without coffee in the morning. So I I need it every morning. And when I work nights, like I could not survive working nights without coffee. Coffee I'm a different human when I'm on nights, so um I don't drink a ton of it. you know, I don't sit there and chug red Bulls or anything like that, but coffee itself, I probably do one to two cups of coffee a day. That's for sure,
1: yeah, just remember to ask your doctors about this too because again, it depends on um so many different things and everybody feels so differently about it
0: and it's I think important to keep in mind timeframes. So I'm going to be coming up on 10 years after my heart transplant, um, which is way different than 30 days post-transplant or right. three months post-transplant or 30 years post-transplant. So, um, you know, for me, my body has gotten used to this new heart. My heart has, you know, realized what medication uh, you know, what dose of my calcium channel blocker I'm on works for me with my intake. So it's easy for me to say, I, you know, I drink one to two cups of coffee and it's not a problem. But for someone else, it could be. Every person is different. We're all individuals. We've all had different transplants. We're all on different levels of medication. So what works for someone might not work for everyone. So this is just general ideas of of our thoughts on this.
1: Exactly. Are there any other questions that people ask us about like dietary habits or like
0: Yeah, I you know, I get a lot do I follow a certain diet or right. is there certain things that I that I try and avoid? And you know, this one is as a cardiologist, it's like, yes, I preach about heart healthy diet, whether it's the DASH diet or the Mediterranean diet. And that's, you know, your fishes and nuts and beans and, and, you know, nice whole food intake from that aspect, avoiding like red meats, your, your candies, your sweets. Um, so I try and follow that. I definitely am not the best at it. I think if there's one thing I probably would change about my post-transplant life, it's that I would try and do better in terms of my diet i do a good job of
1: fellows like yeah. you have a good diet when you're in fellowship. yeah
0: but it's it's hard when you know like you know full well like what's good and what's bad and you just still grab ben and jerry's and and house a pint of ben and jerry's can't help it sometimes
1: i know no i agree uh i think as far as staying healthy or being healthy i've never been like too much of an unhealthy eater sure i'll eat You know pizza and i'll have like burgers here and there but uh i always kind of followed an okay diet i would say especially for someone who's like still in medical training after transplant i know that especially early on after transplant i tried to eat foods that had like a a low sorry i tried to eat foods that were like low in sugar fats cholesterol all that stuff But I think even more importantly, because people are like, are there specific things that you can't eat? And I think we might've talked about this in another episode, but for example, pomegranates and grapefruits and certain herbal teas that interact with your medications, you can't have after transplant. And then the other thing is uh, we kind of follow what I would call kind of a neutropenic diet. So you have to be careful of anything that could put you at risk for infection. And that includes like soft cheeses, deli meats. Um, Again, like I never really ate deli meats even before transplant. So it wasn't that difficult to like, take it out of my diet. But yeah, there's specific things that we have to be careful. of. Oh, like fresh salads is another one. Or like, if you go to buffets, you have to be very careful with the food that you're eating, because you don't know how long it's stayed out. And that could put you at a risk of infection. So it's little things like that, that, you know, we have to change about our lifestyle after transplant.
0: Yeah, I'm the same way in terms of especially raw food. I like, if I go to a sushi place. You know, I get the shrimp tempura roll because it's cooked. Um, and, you know, I definitely avoid oysters. Not that oysters was ever part of my diet beforehand, but it's not something that I'm out there they're trying, you know, when people around me are having it. Um, I have had the occasional deli meat. Um, and, again, that's not something I ate right away after transplant. But as my immunosuppression medication requirements decreased, you know, I still would possibly bring like a turkey and cheese sandwich for, for lunch. And did you cook of, it or no? I did not. I oh, do okay. not. Um, and I think this is one of the things that in the transplant world would be beneficial. And that's, I haven't spoken, uh, I have not spoke to a transplant nutritionist in 10 years. You know, you speak to them right when you're leaving the hospital and they tell you all about, about all the foods that you should be avoiding. And I don't even remember anymore. And I think that's, you know, a a market, especially in as I'm heading into this field of medicine, where I'm going to think, you know, maybe we should have refreshers for people because I myself, I'm in this field, and I don't recall exactly what I'm supposed to be avoiding and what I'm not since I'm so far out, which is a blessing and a curse in a way.
1: That's so funny, because I said, I said exactly the same thing recently. And I actually found our uh, dietitian who was like, In the Ice, in I happen to be in the CTIC right now, like as a physician, but if I ever get hospitalized, it's also where I am. And so I found her and I was like, I really need your help. I forgot what I can eat and can't eat. And uh, she gave me like a list of stuff. And then the other thing that um, we have to be careful of is like foods that are high in potassium, or at least I do. I mean, everybody's a little bit different, but uh, because Prograph, which is one of the medications that we take, um, increases your potassium sometimes. So you have to be careful of like potassium rich foods. And so I had to, she had to like print out a list of like things that I could, I I could versus can't eat. And then she always like gives me refreshers every time I see her. So it's really helpful having that at work, but if I didn't have her, I don't know what I would do.
0: And this is something that's just coming to me as we're sitting here, speaking about this, that I didn't prep for this episode, but part of me wonders, is there a difference too? And you know, in terms of the importance of follow-up with dietitians, I think, you know, we see our doctors, we see our, um, we get our testing to keep looking for rejection and try and avoid coronary artery vasculopathy. But now that I'm so far out, is it okay that I've had a turkey sandwich or am I doing myself harm? And I don't know. And I think that's where it'd be great. Maybe um, any dietitians out there who would like to come on this podcast, I think maybe there's that possible would be we, could, great. <laughs> we could have a whole whole episode about this. And I think, again, this is not something that's just about heart transplant. This is all organ transplant, all people who have an immunocompromised illnesses. So cancer patients who are on immunosuppressive chemotherapy and patients with autoimmune diseases who are on immunosuppressants, I'm sure there's a difference in terms of what to avoid and what to eat and how far out you are and So I think that's something we should definitely look into in the future.
1: Absolutely. I think, I mean, yeah, we should definitely have like someone on the show, but also it'd be great to be able to follow up with someone like in clinic. I don't know if any of your clinics do that out there where when you go to, you know, see your doctor once in a while, after you're so many years out, they also have you meet with the nutritionist or dietitian who helps you out with these things. Like that would be amazing.
0: Yeah, any listeners out there, if you at your center, if you have like, yearly, or even like every five years, you follow up again with a nutritionist or dietitian, um, let us know you can, you know, send us a message through our social media. we would love to hear if different centers across the country are doing this differently.
1: You know, in general, my dad also says this, and I don't know how much like nutrition training you got in med school. But I think I got like, maybe like one hour lecture on it once at some point, but it's just good to know all these like nutrition recommendations.
0: Yeah. And shout out to our dietitians. This is not the <laughs> the we trajectory this episode. <laughs> yeah, we were headed in and here we are.
1: Okay. What's another question that we get asked often?
0: Yeah. So uh, changing direction now, um, completely kind of from that theme of question um, is, would we be willing to accept a high-risk organ? And for the most part, when people ask this, it seems to be in terms of patients who are positive with hepatitis C. Would we be willing to accept an organ from a Hep C positive patient?
1: I would say absolutely. Um, even when I was asked this right before when I was waiting for my transplant, um, I said I would. I would definitely accept a high-risk uh, organ if, if that's what it came down to, just because. I mean, it's hard to pick and choose, you know, when you are desperately in need of an organ transplant. And the thing is, like, for example, with hepatitis C, that can be treated afterwards. So um, I know that sometimes we do high risk donations where I work and, you know, we just treat the patients afterwards, the recipients afterwards with whatever medication that they need to get rid of whatever virus it was. Most of the time it's hepatitis C. So yeah, for me personally, I would definitely say yes. That's not something that everybody agrees with, but I think that there's a shortage of organs and there's only so much that we can pick and choose when it comes to these organ transplants.
0: Yeah, I definitely would say yes. In terms of a hepatitis C positive patient, the medical advancements that they've had in the treatment for hepatitis C is incredible and it's pretty much curable. So the medications that you take now for hep C can cure you. So it's pretty simple. You get the organ, you see if you're positive, if you are, you treat it and you're good to go. Um, And you're now happy and healthy with a new heart, quickly treat the hep C and get to move on with your life instead of being stuck there waiting for an organ. And I think uh, this was on the news. I'm pretty sure there was a physician who is a transplant surgeon who I believe took a hepatitis C positive organ in proof of, you know, to show everyone that it is very low risk option.
1: Yeah, that's actually Dr. Montgomery. He's very open about it. He's over at NYU and there's articles about him everywhere. If you guys just look up Robert Montgomery, he ended up taking uh, this, you know, hep C positive uh, organ transplant and got treated for it and is now doing very well. He actually got his transplant just like a few months before me. And so, and, and, you know, he's great. He advocates for it all the time.
0: Another question I see that's very specific to heart transplant is, was I on any uh, mechanical support? So did I have a balloon pump or an L uh, or an impella, or was I offered an LVAD and would I accept an LVAD prior to transplant? And this question for me is is very difficult to answer. So I, I never had to have a balloon pump or an Impella, which are two devices that can go in through your artery up into your heart and help support your heart when it's failing. Then there's the LVAD, which is surgically implanted. It's a big open heart surgery, the same way transplant is where you'd have to get a pump, but that one you can go home with and wait on the transplant list from home. So I remember when I was waiting for my heart, my doctors mentioned that an LVAD would not be a good option for me, and I think it had to do with the cavity size of my left ventricle, and I don't think it would have been very beneficial, so it wasn't even on the table. But a friend of mine who I met in the hospital um, was very sick, and he needed an LVAD, and he ended up, though, not being able to go home because he was so sick, and he ended up getting moved um to another floor right below me. And we both sat there waiting for transplant. And I know that he didn't really have an option. So he was so sick he was going to die without the LVAD to bridge him to transplant. So he got the LVAD and he did really well and he's doing really well. And I think it's really tough for people to understand that they'd have to go through pretty much back to back open heart surgeries first to get the LVAD in place and then the transplant. For me, being on this in this field now, I can see in terms of how life-saving it is. But I do know as a patient, it would be a lot for me to have to take mentally to know that I had to go through two open-heart surgeries. You know, one is enough for most people to, to sort to of take on the, the mental aspect of having to prepare yourself for two. I think it's very difficult on people, and I don't think it should be downplayed at all. But I do know that LVADs are just getting better and better in terms of their technology. And if you are sick enough to need one, your doctor is probably recommending it for the right reason. So that's kind of my take on that.
1: Yeah, I think I think I would have to agree with you. So it's hard to people ask me that too all the time. Um again, I like when I work in the CTICU and I see heart failure patients who ask me what I would do. I never had to get some sort of mechanical support, but I do, you know, we take care of patients who are on all sorts of mechanical support. That includes LVAD, RVAD, um, ECMO, uh, Impella, balloon pump. There's so many different things that patients could get right before a transplant um, as a bridge to transplant. And personally, I think if it came down to it and it was life or death and I needed to get some sort of mechanical support, I would absolutely say yes. But again, it's hard for me to like, talk about that if I hadn't necessarily, I haven't necessarily been in that situation. I ended up getting a heart transplant. When I, when I was put on the list, I ended up getting it like so quickly, luckily. So, you know, I, I didn't have to think about these decisions, but if it came down to it, these things are all life-saving. They do have their cons. So for example, when you get any sort of mechanical support, you have to be put on anticoagulation, uh, which kind of thins out the blood. And so that puts you at risk for things like head bleeds or, you know, and then if you don't get the correct amount of uh, anticoagulation, you might even be at risk for clots. So there's, there's different pros and cons to these therapies, but ultimately, like you kind of have to weigh the risks and benefits as to what, what's going on with you. So if you think that you would rather have that risk of, of getting the LVAD and having the risks with an LVAD as a bridge to transplant, then it's all for you. And in general, when doctors do recommend it, then, you know, it's because they're recommending it and you're there's, you know, it, it's hard to choose for you. So you should make that decision yourself.
0: Agreed. And I think one part of practicing medicine as someone who's been through so much medically that didn't really register with me until recently is my ability to recommend things that I've been through is inherently influenced by having gone through it myself. And so most physicians, right, they haven't had a balloon pump, an Impella, an LVAD or a transplant. And so they recommend them across the board the same way they would to everyone. But now that I've had a SWAN catheter in and, and a heart transplant, it's like I know what those things are like and I can speak to them more personally with a patient And so when I have that personal experience, it makes me more likely, I think, to gravitate towards maybe that type of intervention. And having not been through something, it's harder for me to try and conceptualize it when I see patients going through it, because then that's where the experience comes from, having watched other people go through it. And it's a definite inherent bias. And I now being aware of it, is actually making me better in terms of how I approach things. But I think initially I was always thinking like, oh, why not just transplant? <laughs> and it's like, yeah. cause I, you know, because I did so well and you're doing so well. And, you know, there's there's stuff like that. But it's like, you, you know, now, now that I'm aware of it, it, I definitely think it actually makes me a better doctor because I'm stepping back and thinking, hey, just because – this went well for you. It's like you have to look at the big picture of how, what is the best for that person? For
1: that person. Exactly. That's exactly what I say. I think that's all that we have for today as far as questions go. If you guys have any questions for us, again, feel free to email us at both sides of the stethoscope at gmail.com or feel free to follow us at both sides of the steth- Oh
0: my God. It's <laughs> <That's> so hard.
1: <laughs> you have to leave that one in. <laughs> feel free to follow us at both sides of the stethoscope on both instagram or twitter uh we love hearing from you guys so please do so
0: yeah everyone thank you so much for listening we will be back again in about two weeks and in the meantime please subscribe to our podcast either on apple or spotify or wherever you do your podcast listening see you soon we're
1: done